we'll pray and then get digging in. We got a lot of ground to cover tonight, so I'm going to do it justice, but I am going to be flying. So y'all, you'll have some notes um, as far as I know here in just a little bit. <laughs> so anyway, all right, let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for the ability to come into your presence again. Open your word and know that it is alive and know that the, the Holy Spirit of God will speak through your word to us, the words that you would have us to hear so that we can know the times that we are living in and we can understand what you have revealed to us in your word. And I thank you, Father God, that as we go through, uh, as we wade through some of this, some of it's not very pleasant, some of it's difficult to get through, but I pray that you will help us, Father God, to do it with honor to you, reverence and justice to your word. And we thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Well, welcome to all of you. It's good to be in the house of the Lord. So let's get started because we do have a lot of material tonight to cover. Tonight, what I'm going to do is go through 12 through 14. It was a little bit too much for me to add on the, the last two chapters, 15 and 16. But actually, when I got to studying in and I got to preparing, I thought they will actually fit better next week anyway. So, next week we'll tackle 15 through 18, where we only have, I think after tonight we have, I believe it's five more um, studies together, so, um, so we're making progress, we're about halfway through right now, and after tonight, of course, we'll be farther than that, so, so anyway, let's tackle these, um, I trust that last week you learned a lot from that exercise that we did and that that was a blessing to you, and that you'll remember that's what's ahead for the Christian. Tonight, we're going to look at some things that are more difficult, and they're harder to wade through, but they are in the Word, and we have to look at the entirety of the Word. We have to look at the whole counsel of God, and God revealed in this one book things that we like and things that we don't like, <laughs> and uh, so as we wade through, we'll, we'll tackle those as we come upon them. All right. Beginning in chapter 12. Now, let me just make this comment introductory-wise as we get into this section. In Revelation, the entire book is not chronological entirely. So you have to understand that. There's these places that are, they almost appear to be breaks in the continuity or in the chronology. And, and so maybe at the end, I'm thinking that with the last lesson, whenever I summarize some things, um, I may be able to at least try to give you a good handle on what are the narrative parts that actually are chronological versus all of the other information. We are in the middle of a section that's the longest, uh, what some call a break in the narrative, and it's from chapters 10 through 14. It's the longest section. And the only thing that's a part of the narrative that's in there is the seventh, uh, seventh trumpet, I believe. But it, there's a lot of additional information. And so most of that's what we're going to tackle tonight. And this additional information helps us understand the players, who's, who's involved, what's going on, what's happening before, during, and after um, the events that are recorded here. Okay, so it's important that God has given us this, and he wants us to understand it. So in chapter 12, we start looking at this thing called the, and it, its section is generally looked at as the woman, 
the child, and the dragon. We got three characters here that we're going to talk about. And rather than read from those scriptures, I've got a ton of other scriptures I do want to bring out tonight, and I'm going to do the best I can to cover them. But in this section, we're looking at the woman, the child, and the dragon. All right, let's first of all identify a few descriptive things that this, this passage tells us. The woman is clothed with the sun. She has the moon under her feet. She has a garland of 12 stars on her head. She's pregnant and about to give birth. Okay? Then the next character we find is this fiery red dragon. He has seven heads and ten horns. He has seven crown-like diadems um, on his head. His tail has drawn a third of the stars of the heavens and throws them to the earth. And he stands by this woman waiting for her child because he wants to devour it. Then we have the child. It's a male child. His destiny is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And we're told that the child is caught up to God and to his throne. It's the same word, when we look at that word caught up, it's the same word harpazo that, that we use um, and that Paul used in Thessalonians when he talked about what we call the rapture, where we are caught up. It's that same word. So then we're re we read in the narrative that this son gets taken up to God and his throne, and then because of that and when that happens, at a later time after that is done at least, this woman flees into the wilderness She's got a specific place that she is to stay, and she is going to be fed and cared for during that time. All right, so now we have some of the basic information. Let's talk about who these characters are. That's what we all want to figure out. Sorry. Ah, don't do that. <laughs> That's what I was trying not to do. <laughs> oh, my goodness. i got to have a little bit bigger stand. Somebody got to make me one, I guess. Okay. All right, um, given the details here, let's identify these by letting Scripture interpret Scripture. Yeah. First of all, when we look at the details here and we let Scripture interpret Scripture, and we see that this woman, this woman imagery is found in Genesis chapter 37, verse 9. And in Genesis 37, we read about Joseph having some dreams. And in verse 9, it says this, Then he dreamed still another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Look, I've dreamed another dream, and this time the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars bowed down to me. So we see this imagery of the sun, the moon, and twelve stars found here together in Genesis 37, verse 9. I believe that this is where we find out who the woman is. The woman is what's represented there, the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, Jacob and his wives and the 12 sons. They are the sun, the moon, and the 12 stars that are around her. So we're talking about this woman being the Jewish people. All right? Often in the Old Testament, Israel and the Jews are referred to as God's wife, and they're referred to in the female voice many times. God's design was for his wife Israel to be faithful to him and carry his Messiah to all the world. Now, I'm going to use two 
books in scripture as just an example of something for you. And we see it beautifully depicted in the book of Hosea, where Hosea is told to marry this harlot woman. And then he's told to go back and buy her back later on because she's been unfaithful to him. And what the book of Hosea is, is showing us is a beautiful picture of God and his bride Israel. Now we see a Gentile bride depicted very well in the book of Ruth, where the Jew and the Gentile become one in Christ in that imagery that's in the book of Ruth. But in the book of Hosea, we see Israel depicted as the unfaithful bride, the unfaithful wife of God. Okay? Now, I want to say this too before going on. We owe a great debt to the Jewish people for at least two primary reasons. One is the Word of God. If, if you never thought about this, you need to realize we would not have the Word of God had it not been for the Jews because the Jews protected and preserved the Old Testament scriptures through millennia of time. They were meticulous about it, and they still are. They're still very meticulous about the Word of God and about the lineages. And the lineage is another part of that because they have kept track of the lineage. And that's why when we come to Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 3, we have the line of Christ depicted from both Joseph and from Mary. Now, that's very, very important for us to understand because those two lineages prove that he is not only Messiah, but he is the legitimate son of David and heir to the throne of David, right? So the Jews were very meticulous about keeping forward and carrying forward the word of God and the lineages that they preserved. But they also, we owe them a debt because they are the ones who did bring the Messiah. I believe the Messiah, Jesus, is the male child that is spoken of here in Revelation. We're told in Isaiah 9, 6, Unto us a child is born and a son is given. Jesus was a Jew. He was a Jewish man. Our Savior was a Jew. And there's a lot of more we can go into with that, but for tonight we're going to continue on here talking about Messiah Jesus being the male child. Now, I believe that the main thing that proves it here in this scripture is this. In Revelation 12, 5, we're told his destiny. Are we not? His destiny is to what? Rule all the nations with a rod of iron. If you turn to, let me see if I can find them. If you turn to Psalm chapter 2, which is a messianic psalm. It says this in verse uh, 7. I'll begin reading in verse 6. God is speaking here through David. David is actually uh, standing, as, if David is the author of this, and we tend to believe he is, he's, he's actually operating as a prophet. And he says this, Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. This is God speaking. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break 
some translations may have it rule, as it is in the New Testament, them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. So we're told here, we are um, told very clearly here that Jesus, or the Messiah who fulfills this, is the one who's going to rule the nations with a rod of iron. That, to me, is the primary reason I believe it's speaking of Jesus and, and can't be speaking of anything else. There's only one person to whom Yahweh says, you are my son. And then he goes on and he tells him, you will rule with a rod of iron. And I've given you some scriptural references here that you can look up as well. But only Jesus fits that bill. Now, I've heard some also declare this as if the ch male child is the church. If that is true, and I don't think it has to be one or the other, it is possible that the church is included in that. Um, if it is, <coughs> we are, as Paul said, the body of Christ, are we not? So it's possible that that includes the church. It is possible. If it is, the only authority we would have in the sense of ruling with a rod of iron is that that Christ himself delegates to us. Do you follow what I'm saying? Because we're told in other places where we will rule with Christ. We will rule and reign with him. Okay? So I'm not going to argue one way or the other about that. I'm just trying to point that out to you because I have heard some that bring it out that way. And it's possible that that is included in there. But I believe that, personally for me, I think it's more talking about Jesus. We know that the child gets caught up to God in heaven and to, his, and to God's throne. And we saw that, we know that that happened when Jesus ascended to the Father. And we're told even in the book of Hebrews um, where he actually came and sits at God's throne. And God says to him, sit here until I make your enemies your footstool. All right? So we know that Christ, when he ascended, Paul also said it in Philippians, that he ascended up to God in his throne, and God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every other name. All right? So I personally think that that solidifies to me that the male child is Jesus, the Messiah. Now, who is the dragon? Lucifer, who was thrown down out of heaven as a permanent resident. Now, the dragon, he, he is actually told right there in Revelation 12, 9, we are told that that dragon is the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world and the accuser of the brethren. All right? So we don't have to wonder about who the dragon is. Now, I want to talk some, a little bit about this thing about him being thrown down out of heaven. He was thrown down in Isaiah 14, we read about that, Ezekiel 28, and in Luke 10, 18, Christ makes this declaration. He says, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Jesus attests to the fact that that part of Satan's fall has already occurred. We know that that occurred sometime prior to Genesis 3, chapter, I mean, chapter 3, verse 1. Because Genesis 3, 1 begins with this phrase. Now the serpent. Same fiery dragon we're talking about here. He's called the serpent later on in Revelation, I believe. So we know that he fell 
from heaven. I believe that was his fall where he was no longer a permanent resident of heaven. Do you understand what I'm saying? He started out and he had a permanent home there. He was an angel just like all the rest of them. Pride and iniquity lifted up within him and was found within him. And God kicked him out of heaven. And he was never to live there again. However, he has still appeared there. And until Revelation 12, apparently he continues to appear there. And I'm going to explain that in a minute. But he appears there because in Revelation 12, where you read a little bit later, it will tell you there was no longer any place found for him. Okay, now why do I say that? We know that in Job chapter 1 and in Job chapter 2, we read about the devil appearing in the presence of the Lord with the angels. Do you understand me? He had been thrown out of heaven as a permanent resident, but he still appears, and he appears for one reason, to accuse the church, to accuse the saints of God. He is trying to stir up trouble. He is trying to get the people of God to doubt and to be accused. That is what he's called, is the accuser of the brethren. So he goes in there, and he, he's, he's appearing before the Lord, maybe in some form of a courtroom setting. That's what it appears to be. Is some type of courtroom setting. Maybe he comes to God's throne. I don't know. But he is appearing before the Lord to accuse. So now he has limited access. His access is only to accuse, to charge the brethren with some type of crime or some type of offense. All right? And I see this also depicted in understanding that, that he was kicked out permanently before, but he's now, in Revelation 12, no longer going to have any place. He, he won't even be allowed in anymore after this point, not even to accuse from this point forward. And you can understand that partly because Hebrew poetry can have, I mean prophecy, Hebrew prophecy can have a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. So his near fulfillment was when he actually fell from heaven and no longer has a place there as far as a permanent residence. But his far fulfillment is when he's not even going to be allowed up there anymore, not at all, to appear before God's throne. We read here that the, there's joy in heaven because he is no longer going to be there, but we found that it's woe to the earth when he is finally kicked out this last time. He will fall with great wrath. He's going to be really, 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 really mad. He knows he only has a short time left to do his dirty work at this point. And so this is apparently from the scriptures happening at the middle point of the tribulation. And that is one of the reasons I believe that the last half of the tribulation is going to be all-out nightmare. I mean, it's going to be horror like they've never known. Jesus predicted it. He said that there's never been horrible times like this on the earth. Okay? 
you can see some of that when we get to those um, those chapters as well, and they're in your notes. I've put, put all those scriptures in your notes. But this last half of the tribulation is when his fangs are really going to come out. Up to this point, he's been able to deceive. He's been a pseudo-Christ. He's almost been like a fake Messiah, and he's been very deceptive. But at this point, he is going to, his true colors will show. And there will be no mercy. He will be merciless and ruthless in his great wrath that he will release. Now, I do want to point this out. When we read in Revelation 12 and we read about his final fall, we read about those that he has, um, he has attacked and those that, he has, uh, that have been accused by him. And we are told that they overcame him, how? By the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony and not loving their life until the death. Now, I want to tell you something here. We have victory over the devil. None of us have to fear him. None of us have to, to worry. We have victory over him. And it is through and by the channel, first of all, of being in a blood covenant relationship with Jesus Christ. It is the blood of the Lamb that covers us. It is the blood of the Lamb that is on us when he's standing over there like a prosecutor accusing us of all kinds of things. God sees the blood covering us. Praise his name. We have a blood covering because we have a blood covenant. And that's why it's so important to have that blood covenant and be in Christ. The second thing is through the word of our testimony. And when you look into that, it's really talking about the Logos, the whole counsel of God. But it's, it's talking about it given really as evidence judicially. So get this idea. We got a courtroom setting again. You got your accuser, your, your prosecutor over here trying to bring up some kind of crime that he's trying to attack you with and accuse you with. And we have the blood of Jesus on us that's covering us, but we also have a part in this. We take the word of God and we say that thing and we declare that thing and we believe that thing and we stand on that word so that it silences our accuser and he cannot stand against us. And then God dismisses our case. He has no grounds for it. I'll give you just a little example that I wrote down in these notes. The accuser might say something like this. Ha, God, I caught him again in that trap. He'll never be free. Have any of you ever heard that whispered in your ear about anything you faced? God sees the blood of Jesus covering us, and he hears us with our mouth say this or something like this. But Father God, your word says, whom the Son sets free is free indeed. And I stand on that word. And I appeal to you on the basis of your word that I am free. And then you might repent of your sins because if, if he's brought it up as some accusation, it might be that he caught you in some trap. And you say, Father, 
in Jesus' name. I repent of my sins and my failures again, and I take your word to heart. According to 1 John 1, 9, you said that if we confess our sins, that you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so you take that word and you bring it to God in your own defense. You are giving the word of God as your evidence. That is the word of your testimony. That's what it's talking about there. And you take it to God and you say, God, you promised it. And I believe you. And I'm standing on your word. And the judge says, case dismissed. Get out of here, Satan. Do you see what I'm saying? This is, kind of, this is the kind of thing that's played out. So when it's talking about him not having any more place anymore, it's talking about a scenario like this where he comes day and night. And you can read more about it in Job chapter 1 and Job chapter 2 because that's exactly what he was doing. He did it in Job chapter 1, and God said, okay, go and, and you know, work on his, his family and, and all of that. And, and then Satan comes back because it says there's another time when they come back. Satan comes back and says, yeah, God, but he's really following you. You know, yeah, I mean, I, I did his children. I took care of his children, and I took care of this, and I took care of that. And he's still following you, but let me have his body, and then we'll see. Do you see what I'm saying? So that's, the, that's what the accuser is doing. He's trying to accuse us. And our defense is first and foremost the blood of the Lamb who stands right beside us as our defense attorney and the word of our testimony, bringing God's word back to him and standing as that as our evidence in God's courtroom. And it is that that gives us the victory over the devil and silences his lies and his accusations. All right? Now, moving on in chapter 12, the focus now is turning to the Jewish people, specifically the remnant who will believe in the end. From this point forward, there will be untold, never-before-imagined evil on the world, but there will be a place of safety for God's remnant of the Jewish people. Now, we also find in this chapter that it tells us the details of what's going to happen to this woman. She's going to flee into the wilderness. She's got a place, a location that has been prepared for her to dwell in, and she will have people that will supply her food and her sustenance. We are not told who these people are, but I assume it to be the people of the location where she is sent to. Okay? Now, I don't know. But she's there for 1,260 days, which is equal to 42 months, which is equal to three and a half years. We are talking about the last three and a half years of the seven-year tribulation according to Daniel chapter 9 that we looked at before when we looked at Daniel's 70th week. This is the period of time that Jesus called the Great Tribulation, meaning that it is even more terrible than the first half. 
the abominations that this evil dragon is going to inflict in the middle of this week from this point forward are going to be horrific. I've given you several scriptures here that give us the basis of this. And Jesus himself told us one specific key element that tells us exactly when this woman is to flee. When Jesus spoke about it, he referred to this. He referred to Daniel chapter 11, verse 31, which says this. And forces shall be mustered by him, talking about the Antichrist, and they shall defile the sanctuary fortress. Then they shall take away the daily sacrifices and place there the abomination of desolation. Jesus is the one, when you come over in the New Testament and you read passages like Matthew 24, where he said specifically, when you see the people that are there at that time, when you see the abomination of desolation, get out of Dodge. Flee to the wilderness. Don't even go down in your house and get your coat. Don't get your pocketbook. Don't get nothing. Just get out of Dodge and flee very, very quickly. That is this time in Revelation that we're talking about. Okay, That's where we are in this story and in this study. Where does she go? She goes into the wilderness. The exact location is unknown. However, I'm going to bring that up in a couple of weeks in another lesson or so. It may be next week. I'm not sure. But we're going to talk about a possible place based on Scripture of where she's going to go. But what I want to focus on tonight, we call this the flight to the wilderness. And what I want you to understand before you leave this building tonight is what is its purpose. What is the purpose of God sending her into the wilderness? The answer is found in Hosea chapter 2. In Hosea chapter 2, remember Hosea is the prophet that depicts God as the husband and Israel as the unfaithful wife. Keep that in mind. In Hosea chapter 2, verse 14 through 17, this is the purpose of, the Is- of Israel's flight to the wilderness that Jesus told them to do. In verse 14 it reads, Therefore, behold, I will allure her will bring her into the wilderness and speak comfort to her. I will give her her vineyards from there and the valley of Achor as a door of hope. She shall sing there. And I know what song she's going to sing, I believe. We're going to talk about that later too. As in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt, and it shall be in that day says the Lord, that you, he's talking to Israel, will call me my husband and no longer call me my master. For I will take from her mouth the names of the Baals and they shall be remembered by their name no more. The purpose of God Sending Israel into the wilderness, into a safe place that he has prepared for her, is because it is during that time 
that he is going to allure her back to him. And the scriptures will then be fulfilled that all Israel will be saved. The very thing that Paul devoted himself to pray for in Romans chapter 10 and 11. The purpose of the flight into the wilderness is for God to allure her back to him in salvation. That is beautiful to me. The Lord has been alluring people, Gentile and Jews, all over the world throughout the church age, and he will continue to do so until the church age is over. But when the church age is over, he's going to turn his attention to the Jewish people primarily for salvation. First three and a half years. Let me tell you something about where the Jews stand right now. And Deanie knows this is true. And some of the others of you know this is true. They are so eager for Messiah. They are hungry to have their Messiah come. They, they are ready. I, I mean, you know, I was thinking about it today. They are like a, a, a horse at a horse race with that in that stall. And that horse is chomping at the bit. It's like, open that door. I'm ready. Get out of here. <laughs> that horse wants to go. The Jews are like that today. They are chomping at the bit to have Messiah come. They're chomping at the bit to build their temple. They've got all the articles prepared. They've got all the worms that they need to get the dye from. They've, they're making all the garments. They're making all the curtains. They've prepared the vessels. They've got it all ready. They're ready to go. And they're going to build it during the first half of the tribulation. Let me tell you, if the Antichrist is going to step into it and put the abomination of desolations in there, it's got to be standing for him to be able to do that. He's going to stop their daily sacrifices. The temple's got to be there. If he's going to stop the stuff, they've got to be doing it. So they will build their temple. And I believe it's going to be part of the Antichrist's deception when he comes. They're so hungry for Messiah. I believe they're going to fall for the wrong one. They're going to fall for the pseudo-Messiah, who we know as the Antichrist. He's going to come, and he's going to be smooth-talking. According to Daniel, he's going to sign a covenant of some kind, some kind of treaty with them for seven years. And he's going to promise them, and I believe it has to include them building their temple. That's one of the only things that's going to cause any Jew to, to agree to some of those terms, especially their temple mount. That's the most beloved holy site in all of Judaism, and they will not let go of that thing without some type of real concessions and guarantees. So you've got this man coming on the stage that smooth talks them, and he's going to deceive them for the first three and a half years. But then he's going to come in and he's going to desecrate their holy temple by putting this abomination. Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 8 calls it the abomination of jealousy because it provokes God to jealousy. That's what he means by that. But he's going to desecrate the temple, put this thing in there, put this image in there, and they're going to have to flee to the wilderness. But it's in the wilderness where God is going to allure that unfaithful wife back to himself. And by the end of that three and a half years, 
where they are holed up and receiving that from the Lord, they will be saved. They will call him at that point, my husband. And they'll be returned back to the Lord. That, to me, is beautiful. I love that. Because the Lord is not willing that any should perish, Jew or Gentile. He loves them all. And he's going after his people. He wants them to be saved. And he's not done with the Jewish people. Now let's get back to the dragon. We got to. Don't want to, but we got to. He responds to her flight and to his inability to overcome her. He gets enraged and he turns his attacks on, it sounds like, the rest of the Jews who maybe didn't flee because there will be some who will not flee. Not then, anyway. It could be any tribulation saints that get saved. Now think about this. At the midpoint of the tribulation, what's just happened? The entire world has just witnessed two witnesses who got killed, laid in the street for three and a half days. Then all of a sudden, breath came back into them. They raised up, and then they were caught up. The whole world sees it. Now, our rapture, it sounds like, is going to be hidden, and I don't know that the world's going to see it. I think they're going to recognize it after it's gone, after it's done, and millions of people all over the globe are finally gone, and planes are crashing and whatever else is going on. And so they'll see the effects But when the two witnesses die, the whole world, it says, sees them. So I would imagine that there might be some people that might get saved in that moment. They might think, you know what? All this stuff I heard about, it's for real. I better get on my knees and repent before the Lord. So there might be some that would get saved, perhaps from witnessing things like that. Perhaps they get saved if they see the flight to the wilderness and the resulting turmoil that will immediately begin. Somehow, this appears to refer to remaining Jews or Christians that are here at that time. But this Antichrist is now provoked to violent anger. Remember the phrase that talks about a woman scorned? Well, to borrow something from the 70s, you ain't seen nothing yet. The evils that we will see or they will see are never heard of before Jesus said that. He said that this will be a time when no kind of evil like this has ever hit the earth before. Now, you think about that. We, we have seen in the last two, three years, we have seen people being beheaded. We have seen people being put into cages bound hand and foot and lowered into a sea where they have been drowned to death. We have seen people set on fire and killed, burning them. And Jesus says that when this time comes, the world has never seen anything this bad before. You think about that. It's going to be Very, 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 very bad. More than we can even imagine. The good news for us, raptured saints will not be here to go through this. We are gone. The Lord has protected us. We will be in heaven and apparently be participating in the Bema seat that we just witnessed last week. Something similar in the drama that we did. That's our 
part in the last three and a half years of the tribulation, I do believe. I don't know if we'll see what's going on down here or not, but I got a feeling we might be pretty busy with the Bema seat. <laughs> I think we're going to be pretty busy with just that. Then we go on in Revelation. We come to chapter 13, and we're introduced to this character that's called the beast. His descriptions are similar to the dragon of chapter 12. We're told he has seven heads, ten horns, and ten crowns. On his head, a blasphemous name. It's some type of name of blasphemy, named perhaps by the dragon. Perhaps it's the dragon's name. Perhaps it's the same name as, or the same name as in Revelation 17. And we're going to get to that next week. That one is Mystery Babylon the Great. I don't know exactly what the name is. But I do know this, in John chapter 5, verse 43, Jesus says, I come in, in my name and you don't receive me, but another is going to come in his own name and him you will receive. That could be prophetic about the Antichrist. So he may be coming either in his own name, this beast's name, or the dragon's name. Whatever it is, it is a name of blasphemy against God. We're also told here that he is similar to the leopard, the bear, and the lion. I believe those speak of his swiftness, his fearsomeness, the fact that he roars and devours like a lion. He, he's frightful. It may indicate not only his fierceness, but also his swiftness in rising to power and position on the world stage after the rapture. He rises for the, for the whole seven years, I believe, but the first half, he's full of deception, so he's very deceiving and seemingly peaceful. But the second half is when he turns merciless. We notice whose agent he is. He is supplied by the dragon, who is the devil. The devil is the one we are told that gives him his power, his ability and might to deceive. He is the son of perdition that 2 Thessalonians speaks of. The devil gives him his position of power, his throne, his seat, and his great authority. This indicates that he will be demon-possessed. He will be possessed of Satan himself. There was one other character in the scriptures that we read about that where Satan entered his heart. Do you remember who it was? Judas Iscariot. Jesus, we recorded in the, in the Gospels where at one point Satan entered his heart. This man will be demon-possessed, wholeheartedly sold over to Satan in total rebellion to God. He will never be able to be saved or forgiven. He has rejected Jesus Christ and thrown his fist in God's face. And he has completely become demon-possessed. Daniel speaks of how he won't regard or honor the faith of his fathers, the God of his fathers. That suggests that he may be either Jewish. Well, actually, all three major religions go back to Abraham, their father, Christians and Jews. Christians and Jews believe in the true line, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
Muslims, however, trace their lineage back to Abraham as well. They just don't accept uh, Isaac and Jacob. They go through Ishmael. Okay? So just understand that. He could be either one of those. Some believe that the Antichrist may be Roman or Western. And they base that a lot on Nebuchadnezzar's statue that's listed in Daniel chapter 2. Because the feet, they say, point to the Roman Empire. Now, that's possible, and I'm not going to argue with anybody because I don't know where he's going to come from. But I'm going to tell you what I see more and more in Scripture. If you'll remember, when the Roman Empire um, split up, it split into two. Remember? There was the Western Roman Empire and the Eastern Roman Empire. And it's interesting, I asked Calvin to pull up a map the other night on the um, Eastern part of the Roman Empire. And it includes such places as Turkey, part of Syria, and part of the northern part of Africa. A lot of those now are Muslim nations. Turkey is highly Muslim. Syria is highly Muslim. He may be Muslim. I say that for several reasons, and most of them are kind of beyond the scope of our 12-week study, there, there's not enough time for us to be able to get into them. But I'll list a couple of things that make me point that direction. One of them is that the Old Testament calls him the Assyrian. Seems to trace his heritage back to Abraham. And he definitely fits the description that John the Apostle gives us in 1 John when he talks about this Antichrist and the spirit of Antichrist. I want to read this to you. In 1 John chapter 4, it says this, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God, and every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. And then he goes on and he talks more about that, about knowing the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. But he defines very clearly for us that the spirit of Antichrist is any teaching, any religion, any ideology that denies the sonship of Jesus Christ, that denies his deity. It's very important, and one of the most fundamental parts of Christianity is to understand that Jesus is fully God and fully man. He was born of a virgin. He was born of eternal blood. He is the Son of God. Now, in the Muslim religion, for instance, one of their main teachings from the Quran is this. Allah has no son. Their entire religion is based on the fact that Jesus is not the Son of God. They recognize him as a mighty man, as a great prophet, as a great man, but they will not honor and believe in the fact that he is the Son of God.
If you want to understand more about Jesus being the Son of God, the book of John, the Gospel of John and 1 John makes it very, very clear. The teaching. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand me. This is not anti-Muslim. God loves Muslim people. He wants to save everybody all over the world. And any that call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. He is saving Muslims. There's a great revival in the Muslim nations going on today in Iran and in Syria and in many of those places. It, it's, it's phenomenal what God is doing. And many of them are coming to Christ. Some, some of them are coming through visions and different things. God loves Muslim people. So this is not anti-Muslim. We invite them. Yes, come to know Jesus, the Messiah, just like we have. This is open to everybody. But there is a segment that is very evil in that religion. And that has embedded in it the spirit of Antichrist because it denies the sonship of Jesus Christ. Do you understand me? It's possible that that radical element may be of this Antichrist spirit. It is of the Antichrist spirit, and it may be that he rises from within that. We shall see. Apparently, this Antichrist will have some type of mortal head wound by some type of sword, and he gets healed by demonic powers. Satan is delegated certain powers by God, and remember, in the last days, he is granted these powers in order to deceive. It, Jesus warned at, at one point, remember where he said he, he could deceive, he even tries to deceive the very elect of God. I'm going to give you this warning. Watch out for deception. It'll come. It's everywhere today. It's in different corners and segments of Christianity. Satan does have limited power to deceive. And that power is granted to him in an increasing way, I believe, as we see the last days approaching. So you must remember that. This healing act that apparently happens to this Antichrist causes the whole world to worship the dragon and the beast. The world falls for his deception. And he treats, the world then begins to treat them as if they were God in heaven and worship them as God. Now I'm going to throw this in here too. <clears throat> I've been involved in the past with friends of mine and um, other brothers and sisters in the Lord who were caught up in chasing after supernatural things. They were always looking for some prophet to give them a word from the Lord. They were always chasing the supernatural signs. Now I'm going to warn you this way. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, watch out for that. That's very real in some segments of Christianity and in many churches. And I have dear friends that it has broken my heart about. And I've been with them a time or two to a particular place. I won't name it. But it, it just in my spirit, I was like, oh, this is not good. This is not good. I don't like it. You just know the Spirit of God will give you a witness. 
And I'm telling you, you need to pray for discernment of spirits nowadays because it will be something that's clouded in Christianese. And it's going to be very deceptive to try to draw you in. Jesus taught us this. He said of his disciples, he said, these signs will follow those that believe. The miraculous power of God is not for show. It's not to be toyed around with. It's not to be chased after. And it's not to be uh, treated in an irreverent fashion. And I give you a biblical example of that. Jesus was sent to Herod, was he not? And Herod was like, oh boy, maybe he'll do one of those tricks for me that I've heard so much about. But Jesus wouldn't do it because Herod was looking for amusement. Herod was looking for entertainment. And the holy things of God are never to be treated for entertainment or amusement by somebody. And Jesus would not do it. And he remained silent. And Herod got mad at him and sent him back to Pilate. <laughs> he didn't like being ignored. But Jesus was not about to take the holy things of God and turn them into something irreverent. We need to have respect for the holy things of God. And I warn you, don't be chasing after supernatural things. If, if they need to appear for that situation, if you need the gifts of healing to be able to pray over someone and that person be healed, God will supply it by his spirit in that moment to meet that need. But he has not given them to you for show. He has not given them to you for fleshly reasons or for amusement or entertainment. You treat the things of God with respect and with honor and with severity and with reverence. And Jesus did that. But this man will have powers to deceive. He will have the signs. And it makes me think that part of this pull for people today going after supernatural things might be setting them up for this deception from this man. It's too dangerous. Don't toy with it. Don't play with it. We're told a little more about his limited authority given by God, that he has this blasphemous mouse, mouth that boasts of big things. If you read back, and I'm not going to pull it up right now, but in Daniel chapter 7, verse 20, Daniel gives us a little bit of information about this man. And he says in that verse, he says that he has eyes and a mouth that speaks boastful things. Now, that's all Daniel saw. Is it possible that what Daniel was looking at was what we see sometimes on television today in the news from some places where they are radical and, and jihadist. What do you see on them? Think about it. All you see are eyes and you hear their boasts from their mouth. Could it be possible that that is what Daniel saw in his vision, and the only way he could describe it was that he had eyes and a mouth boasting great things. I just throw it out there because that does match 
some of the appearances that we can see on our television sets in the news at times. He is given a limited amount of time. This is these last three and a half years. He is allowed to operate in this blasphemous way for 42 months or three and a half years, the last half of the tribulation. The degree of his reach in his powers is that he makes war with the saints. These would be the tribulation saints, and they will be martyred for their faith. We are told that in, in Revelation 14, 13 for one place. It declares this, that all who believe after the midpoint of the tribulation will be martyred. And it says in that verse, blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on. It's talking about people that will have to stand the ultimate test and be martyred for their faith. And those are the people that refuse to reject Christ prior to this time in the tribulation. He has given the authority to um, deal with everybody that dwells on the earth, to have authority over them, overtake them, bring destruction and evil to them, over every tribe, tongue, and nation that is left, and all will worship him. All of those who are not found written in the Lamb's book of life. Now, we saw an, a, a depiction of that book last week, and we'll see it again in a coming week. But that's why this book is very, very important. Every one of the names that are in that book will not be a part of this. But every one of the names who are not in that book that are alive at this time will suffer under this Antichrist. This is why the book of life, Lamb's book of life, is so important. The next beast we get to is this second beast. And I'm going to try to wrap up here in the next few minutes. We call him the false prophet. He rises in the same authority as the Antichrist. And we're told he has two horns like a lamb or a ram. He, may, he seems then maybe to be a gentle person, more maybe even Christ-like of some kind, deceptively. He has great influence over the earth dwellers, those who reject God. And he gets all the people all around the world to worship the beast, this one whose deadly wound was healed. Now, you think back, because all of this is from the power of Satan. And both the, the beast and the false prophet are actually demon-possessed by this time, at least. This is what Satan's been after all along. Before his fall, what was he after? Worship. He wanted to be worshipped. He said, I will be like God. I will sit on his throne. He has been hungry for worship. And now, through his deception, he gets this worship from these people. This false prophet has great supernatural powers to deceive with many signs and wonders. He can even call fire down from heaven. Now, perhaps that is in contrast to the two witnesses who just had the power to do that. Remember, not long before, before they were raptured up. Perhaps he was trying to counter them. He influences the earth dwellers to not only worship the beast, but also to make an image to the beast. This is that image that Daniel called the abomination of desolation, and Jesus called it that as well. They take that image, whatever it's going to be, I don't know what it's going to look like. 
There was a foreshadowing of this in about 165 BC with Antiochus Epiphanes. And he took, I believe it was a statue like Zeus, I think, that he took into the Jewish temple and put in there and desecrated it. And the Maccabees rose up. That was the Maccabean revolt and all of that. And we now have the festival of Hanukkah because of that, the Feast of Dedication. That was a foreshadow that would give us a glimpse toward what is going to happen. But there's going to be some kind of image, whether it's Zeus or one of the other Greek gods or who knows what it's going to be. It might be a statue of this man. I don't know what it's going to be, but he's going to take it and put it in God's holy temple, in the holy place. That's what Jesus called it. And so that is going to provoke God to jealousy, and we're going to see him come back in a couple of weeks when we get to that part of Revelation, and that's one of the things he's going to be angry about and he's going to be provoked over. This false prophet also miraculously gives breath to this image and it speaks. Now imagine that. I don't want to be there to hear that. He martyrs all those who will not bow down and worship it. These are those tribulation saints and they will be martyred. Now this false prophet very likely may arise and many people believe that he will arise from some segment or section of the Roman Catholic Church. He may be the Pope. I don't know. But if you'll notice today in the news, they are moving more toward a what? One world religion. They are promoting so much tolerance of all the religions. Well, let's just all be one. We all worship the same God anyway. That's what they're saying on our newscasts today. Now, that should dishearten and concern any Christian Catholics. And I know there are Christians who are Catholic. So this is not against the Catholic religion. But it's very likely, at least it sounds like it, and it looks like he may arise from some segment within that Roman Catholic Church. We don't know. This false prophet makes everybody small and great, rich and poor, free and slave. Take this mark of the beast. And I know we all want to know what that is. I do too. <laughs> it's some type of mark. The first time anything like this was used in Scripture was when God put a mark on Cain, on Cain's forehead in Genesis chapter 4. Maybe it's similar to that. It's put on the right hand or on the forehead. Now, in Revelation 14.1, we're told that the people that are standing with, Mount, with Jesus on Mount Zion in that verse have the mark of God, the name of God written on their foreheads. Satan is nothing but a counterfeit. He's nothing but a counterfeit, and he's a copycat. So he's trying to copy what God has done. God has marked his people, so he makes sure that all of his folks are marked. And it's required at that time. They're going to have to either have the mark, the name of the beast, or the number, 666, the number of his name. This mark signifies, this is very important, it signifies a willing pledge of loyalty and allegiance to this beast. There is no turning back. This mark, taking it permanently, seals that person's doom. Permanently seals that person's doom. This mark 
is in strict contrast to Jewish law. Jewish law in Leviticus 19.28 forbade anyone from doing any kind of mark on their body. Tattoo, branding, anything like that. Now, I don't know if it's going to be some kind of tattoo they're going to do. They're talking about these microchip things. I tell you what, I don't want no microchip put in my body. <laughs> I ain't even getting close to that, that sucker. I don't want to touch none of that. I don't know if it's going to be a microchip or not. But they're coming out with all kinds of possibilities of what this is going to be. I don't know what it's going to be. But it will be something, and they will all be required to have it. Now, 666, people wonder about that. Six is the number of man throughout Scripture. That is true. But I believe that we don't need to worry about this number. I don't think it's for us to calculate. We're going to be gone. But the people who are here in some way are given some way. Maybe it's wisdom from God to be able to calculate this thing. That's what it's telling us here. I don't know what it is. But it is interesting to me. And I found this interesting, too, in John chapter 6, verse 66. I'd like for you to just take a minute and read that. You don't have to do it right now, but later from your notes or whatever. Take a minute and read that and see what you think. Because it's in that passage where it says that from that time forward, many turned and would not follow Jesus anymore. Interesting. I just find that very interesting. That John 6, 66, not a lot of chapters in the scriptures have 66 verses. But I find it interesting that in John 6, 66, it talks about them from that point forward, never following Jesus again. Interesting to me. I don't know if it means anything prophetically or not, but I just found it interesting. You know, they, the, the scripture, the verses, the chapter verses are not, they're not inspired so maybe it doesn't mean anything, I don't know, but I sure found it interesting. These three, this dragon, beast, and antichrist, form an unholy trinity. Remember, Satan is a counterfeit, and he's a copycat. So he is forming an unholy trinity here. Better news, we get to chapter 14. And we got the lamb and 144,000 and a grand assembly. They are standing there. They sing a new song, I believe. I call it Psalm 152. That's what I call it. But this one's going to be a surprise to every one of us because we're not given the lyrics for this one. Only the 144,000 will know this one. So they'll get to sing it to us on that day. They are redeemed from the earth. And this is their special time, special worship time, with their Redeemer. We get to watch and listen, but we won't know the words to this one. Now, I want to take a few minutes here as we close up, and I want to go into one last thing here from Revelation chapter 14. And we're going to pick up some of this next week when we actually get into the reaping and um, we start seeing the bowl judgments and all of that next week. But I want you to understand something here, because at, by this point in Revelation 14, and we're midway through the tribulation, all Christians are gone, except for maybe tribulation saints that remain. And I don't know what their status is at this point here for these messages. All Christians are gone in the rapture. 
All 144,000 and the two witnesses are gone. So the Jewish believers are gone too. Who's left to preach the gospel? Would God go without a witness? No, he will not. Read this from me. Read this with me in Revelation 14, verse 6. Then, John is speaking, I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water. God will always have a witness. Now, I told y'all before in this study, and this is one of the ways that proves it, God goes to great lengths to reach people. When the church is gone, it becomes the Jews' job. When the Jews are gone, the Christian Jews that, that go up in the, in the rapture, the 144,000 and all of those, and the other Jews are hide out in, um, in the wilderness over there, whose job is it? God sends an angel. He sends an angel. The Bible tells us, and you can know that it's true, he is not willing that any should perish. He has gone to great lengths, and he will still go to great lengths. He sends an angel from heaven flying with what? The everlasting gospel. There's only one good news. There's only one gospel, Paul tells us in the book of Galatians, and it is salvation in Jesus Christ. So God takes it upon himself at this point to still warn the world. We go on, and he sends this other angel talking about Babylon falling. We're going to talk more about that next week. But then see this. There's a third angel that follows them saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image, and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. So God sends a third angel, and his job is to warn people what? Don't take the mark. If you take the mark, you have just sealed eternal damnation. So God is going to great lengths to warn people even in the last half of the tribulation. He doesn't want anyone to perish, but all to come to eternal life. That is our God. He even cares about people after they've rejected him and rejected him and rejected him. And he's still, in the last half of the tribulation, trying to reach people with the gospel and save them from an eternal hell. That's our God. He's powerful and he's beautiful. And then he goes on there. 
And he talks about those who will be tested. Y'all can come on to the piano. He talks about those who will be tested, the ultimate test, and have to give their life for the kingdom of God. And he tells them, blessed are you who will have to die from this point forward. If you'll remember in one of the churches, in the letter to the churches, one of them, Jesus had told them, you be faithful to the end because when you give your life for me, I'll be waiting right on the other side and I have a crown of life to give you when you meet me on the other side. So even though people have rejected Christ maybe up until this point of the tribulation and they get saved in the last half of the tribulation and they have to give their life, they are just going to step from this part of from this life into that one and the Lord will be greeting them the Lord will greet them God cares about every person and even though all of these things are are nasty they're evil they're they're horrific they're things that we can't even imagine yet the loving God is still still trying to reach them that amazes me he takes it upon himself to commission an angel to send and warn them in the last half of the tribulation just because he doesn't want any one to perish but that all would come to eternal life and I know that we all love him and I pray that we'll be able to worship him Jesus as we sing this song and as they lead us in this song I just invite you to do that but maybe for somebody that might be hearing this on the tape or seeing it on a DVD, come to Jesus now. Don't wait. It's only going to get harder for you. It's only going to get worse for you. The call is going out now. Come to him now. Repent of your sins and believe upon him. And he will save you and rescue you from all of this that we've just talked about. May we pray that for people, that they will come and get saved. And may we worship our God who loves us and every other person that we come in contact with and meet so much that he's not willing that any perish, but that all would come to eternal life. I'll lead us in a closing prayer once they're done. Pass me by the crowds of people 
the priest to sing their praise. I hunger and thirst for your righteousness, and it's only found in one place. So take me into the holy of holies. Take me in by the blood of the Father, just as this song talked about, we want to enjoy beautiful fellowship with you even here and today, but we also want you to cleanse our lips and take us and use us for your kingdom's sake, because your heart is beating for the lost, 
Your heart is beating for the prodigals. Your heart is beating to see no one perish. And I pray that we will be your ministers to move and to act on your behalf in a manner worthy of you and that we will tell the everlasting gospel wherever we go as long as we are here to do it. Help us, Father, in all of the areas that you've called us into. Bless each and every one of us and, our, and your people and enable us to do what you've called us to do in these last days because we know the clock is ticking and we know that we're getting closer and closer and closer to that day when we will stand before you. Let us be found faithful to the end. In Jesus' name, amen.